Hello, I'm Emily Austin, founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become harder and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with a stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, seems to be a mark of status. But when did that happen? Why has the goal become to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? My own experiences of the rhetoric around entrepreneurialism is that everyone's full of shit and no one actually tells the real story. This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed and honest insight into the reality of running a business from some of our favorite entrepreneurs. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm really excited to have an episode with uh, another friend of mine, Henny Kim, founder of cult clothing brand Kitry, began her business journey into luxury fashion. The business needs no introduction. I'm sure you've seen the amazing patterns, colors, dresses, and a whole range of products popping up on your Instagram and your favorite influencers. They're experiencing a stratospheric rise in a space that's really challenging and a lot of the the products that currently exist in this market are really copyable. So it was really interesting to catch up with Henny about how she can create an identity in, in a marketplace like that. Her desire was to create a lifelong, unique range of pieces. And she launched the brand in 2017, bridging the gap between the high street and hero pieces that don't put you out of pocket. Five years on, the brand has had an army of kitchery girls wear the product loads of famous people i won't list them all but we do in the podcast some hugely successful collaborations particularly with jesse bush who you've probably heard of henny and i covered a range of different topics it's one of my favorite podcasts that i've recorded we talked about standards that we set for women through social media why it's impossible to have a good relationship with online platforms the challenges that face women in their entrepreneurial journeys, why competition can be bad for our mental health and why we have to be disciplined about where our focus lies. We talked about how Kitchery is tackling some of the sustainability challenges that face the sector. We obviously hear constantly about fast fashion and, and how that's changing and evolving. Uh, the fear of greenwashing and whether founders should be afraid of call-out culture. Kitchery is really setting the tone for the future of fashion brands and buying better. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to this business story and getting to know Henny. Can you start by telling me a bit more about the business and then more specifically what your role is within the business? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm super excited to be talking to you. <laughs> um, so I am the founder and creative director of Kitchery. And Kitchery is a London-based independent online women's wear brand that bridges the gap between high street and contemporary women's wear brands. Um, so we have high quality products um, and design. We only strictly design in limited quantities um, and offer products at prices that don't break the bank to creative professional young women. So tell me a bit more about what you were doing before you founded the business because it started in 2017. So not, not, not ages ago, still relatively new. What were you doing before that that led to the idea and then subsequently led to you actually starting the business? Yeah, so I've worked in fashion for, oh my God, nearly 10 years now. So as soon as I um, graduated from university, I started interning at really high-end um, fashion designer brand based in London, under marketing, and did a little bit of everything really. Um marketing, merchandising, sales, a bit of PR, although I was very, very bad at that, and just operations in general, um, and try to kind of soak in as much as possible. And then after that, I decided to go and work for a production agency based in Hong Kong. So I lived out there for five years, um, extensively traveling around the Far East, um, just learning as much as possible about production and building um, product ranges and working with different suppliers from all across Southeast 
Southeast Asia um, to bring products to European and US-based customers. So the reason why I did that is because I always had this dream of um, starting a brand when I, you know, when I had enough experience. Um, so as soon as I kind of had done high-end and experienced a bit of marketing and sales and financial side of things in London, I wanted to kind of learn more about how the products actually get made. So that's that's why I decided to move out to Far East. And then after that, um, I came back to London to start Kitchery um, in 2017. And um, I guess I had the idea when I was back in Hong Kong, um, just looking for something nice to wear for like a brunch with friends. And I had a really long week. I remember it's just never ending. The hours are so long in fashion industry um, and had a really difficult week and wanted to find something really nice to wear went out shopping and really couldn't find what I was looking for. Um, and because of my experience in both high-end and, and value-driven end of the market of fashion industry, I was looking for something quite specific. So I was looking for something that was high quality, that's something that I could wear for a long time, um, something that had playful and fun design, um, and something that um, you wouldn't kind of bump into someone wearing the same outfit at a at a party or at a brunch or at a restaurant, um, or within the price range that I could afford at the age of <laughs> mid-20s to late-20s, which is a tall ask. Um, so I went through every store, every high street, every department store, and I just couldn't find what I was looking for. So I started asking around my friends, um, you know, where do you guys go shopping? Maybe I'm a little bit biased because I'm in the industry. Maybe I'm not, you know, um, I'm not really realizing like, this magic brand that I haven't found yet. Um, and it seemed that none of my friends could give me a, an answer that, that, you know, that they really kind of could, could stand behind. So that's when I realized maybe there is something here that I could kind of bridge that gap between high street. Um, and at the point it was a contemporary designer, um, price point. So that's what I set out to do. And it took about, I mean, once I had the idea and, you know, try to kind of flesh that out. It, it it was really quick from idea to market. It took me about 10 months to prepare all of that. Um, and then launched in February, 2007, well, February, March, 2017. So you very much stumbled upon a problem and a gap in the market that had an impact on you as a customer and then decided to remedy that gap. We hear a lot now about pressure for particularly young people to, have an amazing idea, be a millionaire before they're 25. Um, there's this negative connotation with what it actually is and what it takes to run a business. Do you think that the experience that you had prior to launching the business was integral to you being able to do it because you had a network, you'd been made aware of these sort of interacting departments in different parts of the business? Was that a really critical thing for you to have the confidence and the, the right information to set up the business? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. That's something I try to grapple with really early on in my career. Um, I think there is this kind of idea and glamorization of being a young entrepreneur. And like you said, you know, making it before you're 25 and all of that. I never really felt that. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always had it in my mind that I wanted to start something myself. But it took me a really long time to get there because I just never thought I was good enough or new enough or old enough um, to actually start a business with confidence. So I think it took me a really long time to kind of try to get any nuggets of information and experience that I could get across all parts of the business that I would eventually like to run um, in order for me to like bite the bullet so to speak, and and start something. But even then, like it was a terrifying experience. And thank God I had, you know, those experiences prior to starting Kitchery. But even at that point, like even today, I'm like constantly learning, constantly feeling like I need to know more, learn more, and just reaching out to be better. So I don't think there's ever like a good time or a good age to start. But I think, you know, any experience or learning that you can get prior to starting your own business is is can only be a good thing. But also understanding that it's a constant learning experience like curve and journey rather than just trying to kind of know everything before you start because that will never happen <laughs> yeah you mentioned that you always knew that you wanted to run a business you just perhaps didn't have the confidence or didn't know what the idea was where do you think that awareness and drive came from 
to know that that was something you really wanted to do? Um, I think my father being a successful entrepreneur helped from a young age. I kind of saw what he was doing. And although he was so stressed and so busy all the time, um, I really kind of aspired to be like my own boss. And it always seemed so like cool that he had his own, you know, business that he was successful and, and was a, able to um, provide for his family and and help his friends. And, and I always kind of thought that was really cool. Um, but I was also... Um, I also came to um, to England when I was 12 to be a ballerina. So on my own, my family still live in South Korea. So I guess you can say that I had this kind of abnormal sense of independence and, <laughs> and ambition from a young age, um, probably fueled by ignorance that I had no idea how hard that would be. <laughs> but I always just had this thing, like I wanted to make something of myself and do something and, and hard work and, and I guess challenges um, that I would face never really kind of deterred me. I just kind of, let's just go and do it and see what happens. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess I kind of knew from a very young age, but what people don't prepare you for is just how hard it is and just how difficult and you know and lonely and and stressful all of this can be um and I do think that people need to talk about it more because like we talked about earlier there's a huge um tendency to glamorize um being an entrepreneur and a young entrepreneur and and this kind of idea that you can all make it by the age of 25 you know so yeah the fashion industry is famously undiverse in many ways. Obviously, there have been huge advancements to making it more representative for all different types of people. I know there have been sort of moments specifically connected to body type. There's obviously um, evolution in the imagery that we see and representation of different people and countries and communities and designers. You know, my experience a decade ago coming into the fashion industry was that I really didn't fit in as someone at the time who weighed over 100 kilos. I didn't have blonde hair. I wasn't a party animal. I wasn't, I didn't, I couldn't wear sample clothes. It was very um, polarizing for me. And I didn't see, I knew I had a place in PR and in communications, but I couldn't see exactly where I fitted. And it felt very isolating. And it, it was, um, an experience I had that was entirely negative, really at the hands of women. Um, I didn't have, you know, the Me Too story is not my story. I've worked with brilliant men. That wasn't sort of my experience. But particularly with fashion, recognising that there has been an evolution from a decade ago, what's your experience been like in terms of that inclusivity piece and your experiences of how you've been received with the product that you've created in this industry? I think it's still a, a, a problem that the industry is trying to tackle. We're certainly not there yet. And I think it's amazing what's happening recently about, you know, like you said, inclusiveness of, you know, all body type, shapes and sizes and race. And I think representation is really, really important. Um, I certainly felt that when I first came into the industry at the age of, you know, 20, um, interning at like a really high end, um, super glamorous fashion industry. It was certainly really isolating to kind of know that I was, you know, one of the only Asian origin, uh, Asian, um, interns at the time. And also I wasn't that kind of tall blonde, like, like you mentioned yourself, didn't really feel like I fitted in. And also in the industry, all the models were like smaller than sample size. I mean, they were so tiny that we'd have to make a sample size, which is an impossible size. And then we'd have to, you know, alter it to fit the models, which were, who were even smaller. I mean, it was completely an impossible, um, impossible image to try to follow so it was really difficult at the time and I and I think that's when I realized that perhaps super high-end ultra glamorous um kind of brand um environment wasn't for me it wasn't doing anything really good to my mental health and confidence and um and also I didn't really feel like it represented um real world you know the when I say real world you know the world that my friends and I live in um you don't go out seeing you know someone size, size double zero in you know spangled body con dresses all the time so you know that's when I decided that maybe I need to you know look at other parts of the industry and try to find an image and you know find an area that I would feel included in and 
comfortable in and who, which I saw more befitting of, of my friends and my lifestyle. So, you know, I think that's really, really important for us to carry into what we do in Kitri. You know, we started from UK size six to, to UK size 16, which is at the time the most inclusive size range um, that I could find in the, in that part of the industry. But now we're really looking to expand that size range even more. Um, there are lots of different challenges that come from um, trying to cater to um, different sizes across uh, the brand. Like, you know, if you have to do double, triple the amount of fits with different types of bodies and which obviously has um, associated costs for a small brand. Uh, starting out, you know, is a really, really quite a lot of um, challenges that we have to face. But I think it's really important. So we're looking into, you know, expanding that um, this year and next year. And yeah, and I think how we represent race and body um, body shapes and sizes on our website is something that is super important. Um, and through social as well, I think that there is you know so much support and love for women of all shapes and sizes um, for the brand. So it's really important for us to acknowledge that and just really kind of build build upon that community. You mentioned I'm interested in, you talked about sort of additional fits for body types that are potentially larger. And that obviously has a cost. And smaller, yeah smaller there's a cost associated with that for for young people now or for anyone starting a business we're told to pick a cause we're told to be mission-led we're supposed to be thoughtful about lots of different things that are important to us but also to our consumers in addition to cost implications of doing that resourcing etc it's quite confusing right now because you've got You've got to be sustainable, which means that products need to be sourced ethically and sustainably, which, you know, we would hope everyone would sort of broadly agree with. Your packaging needs to be at least recycled, at best sort of biodegradable. You need to have all of your um, POS and accompanying materials to not be sort of plastic. You've got to create press mailers. You've got to think about what you do in your office connected to sustainability do you need to become a b corp you've then got to think about inclusivity in terms of team imagery size what who you're providing for you've then got to think about you know the balance of gender that you've got to think about are we being activists around climate change or is it connected to this or are we focusing on supply you know it is impossible even for big businesses to do all of that but there is now, particularly with the kind of noisy call out culture on social media, there's a lot of pressure for businesses to be defendable at all stages. Did you feel pressure when you launched to be all things to all people and have lots of causes? Or did you feel very strongly, actually, we're doing the best we can with what we have. And the more we grow, the more we can do. And I'm sort of okay with that. Yeah, I think in 2017, it was a it was a less potentially like a hostile place to start a business um, or confusing. I think um, for us, we've always kind of decided that we are honest about what we do and we're a small company and we're doing the absolute best that we can and, and we evolve and we grow and we learn. Um, and, you know, uh, hopefully we can explain ourselves to our customers face-to-face if it ever came to that. So I think ultimately you can't be everything all at once, particularly when you're starting out. But I think what you can do as a business is really kind of try your best at being the best at what you can do. So, you know, for us, sustainability has always been quite a tricky thing to wrap our head around because fashion, we generally believe, is innately unsustainable um so what we really want to do at the core of what we do is is being responsible for what we do and all the decisions that we make and making sure that we're we're doing the best that we can so you know broadly it comes down to you know the fabrications that you use and how we can evolve that without kind of making sure without making sure that you know um, it's going to be super expensive for our customers at the end at the end of that product, but also not just that, but making it durable so that it's not a throwaway fashion. So you know we're we're using um, eco fabrics that is durable that you can wear and love forever. Um, manufacturing is obviously, like you said, is something that we all um, need to make sure that it is you know morally um, upstanding. 
And then we have to go into making sure that overproduction is not something that, that, that we condone. So we're super careful about how much we produce and we're monitoring customer reaction through various different technology and platforms and making sure that we produce the right amount at the right time, which is obviously the, the, the challenging aspect of the business. Um, but also we have introduced things like pre-order to make sure that we can really gauge that interest with our customers and, and pretty much moving towards ordering to order. Um, and then just making sure that we are talking to our customers constantly about mindful consumption. So I believe that women have, um, we have very emotional um, attachment to the fashion that we love. And it should be that we are lengthening the life cycle of that product and producing something that she can wear and love forever or for a very long time and come back to it time and time again, rather than just kind of, you know, take a photo with it and then throw it away or, you know, it being uh, disintegrating in the wash. So there's lots of different aspects of the word sustainability that gets bandied around but for us it's more about durability you know mindful consumption and making sure that we're not overproducing and then things like you know um product packaging and things like that it's come a really long way but there is still a lot of innovation that that i'm really excited to see in the industry there are lots of really exciting things coming out already but you know again for a small startup business it will be prohibitively expensive to use from the beginning whether that is to do with you know moqs or just just cost um, but i think as some of these bigger companies do adapt to um these new innovations and it will make it more kind of accessible for smaller brands so um i think it's all kind of you know uh case in case and step-by-step process into making sure that everything that we do is um responsible Mm. moqs is that minimum order quantities yes minimum order quantities yeah it's that is a word that you hear hear me talk about a lot because it's the biggest challenge across every part of the business i want to i want to talk to you about challenges i want to ask about um some of the sort of earlier challenges before we move on to, to a bit more about what's going on now but you know we we hear a lot I hear a lot of people saying you know and then I, I came up with the idea and um you know I found someone to produce the product and then and here we are and you think well that's ridiculous as a piece of advice um and I'm interested, you know, for someone who is at that stage where they're sort of ready to go, they've thought about it. What are the practical steps that you took? Did Was it easy to find someone to produce the product? Did you have to speak to lots of people? Were there, did you have to negotiate about saying, actually, I don't want a thousand products because I don't know what I'm going to sell and I don't have the money? Like, what was the sort of practical bit around um, setting up, you know, what sort of any part of the process that's particularly uh, interesting to you from a challenge perspective but I would assume it would be around onboarding a manufacturing partner um so yeah can you tell me a bit more about that yeah absolutely um so I guess the experience part that we talked about earlier kind of comes into play here in full force because I had worked with quite, you know quite a broad different array of diff- um, array of suppliers in the far east um during the time I lived in Hong Kong and worked in Hong Kong um it was quite helpful in guiding me understanding what kind of level of quality I wanted, what kind of price point that I wanted to hit in order to hit the, you know, final retail price point um, that I thought, you know, there was a gap in the market for. So really that kind of reduced down a lot of the suppliers that, that, that I knew at the time. And also it meant that I could be very clear in what I was looking for when I was meeting new people doing, you know, networking sessions or, you know, asking, um, p- colleagues and people in the industry for their advice and recommendations. So it was very much, um, uh, you know, an elimination process and just finding new people that I thought would be great for the business. But then after that, it becomes, you know, very much like a sales pitch because they, they've they never heard of you. You're not like a, a brainchild of an H&M backed, you know, whatever. Um, and you're not a proven entity. Um, and also you're looking for probably a test quantity that is a minimum order for any supplier that worth their salt. So you're really having to go in there and really pitch your idea and go, you know, for Kidstree, it was, we are going to be bridging this gap between price point with high quality. We're direct to consumer. It's going to be, you know, limited quantities, but we're going to really drive desire and making sure that we don't overproduce. And, you know, it was a whole different kind of, level of of pitching um to these 
foreign entities that probably don't understand your market, probably don't speak your language as their first language, and probably never even, you know, met you before. So there was a lot of pitching that happened at the very beginning of Kitri's um, kind of sort manufacturer sourcing. But I was lucky that a couple of them kind of was intrigued by the idea and also backing a business that was going to be online in the UK as kind of I guess for them a test as well. So I did manage to procure an MOQ that was actually larger than the MOQ that we're working to now, actually, because we really had to kind of prove to them that, okay, so we want this kind of quality. What is the MOQ that you can hit? And we negotiated to a comfortable level for them, but very uncomfortable level for me. Um, And then finally kind of launched a business that way. But I do think that, you have to be really mindful of the kind of business that you want to build as well, because I, I see so many, um, I hear so many stories about people who don't know how to negotiate um, MOQs and with suppliers um, through lack of experience. And they end up with like a thousand of something in their living room. And, you know, what they don't realize is that cycles change, trends change, things might not actually work out with a launch or, you know, with a business, heaven forbid, and then you just ended up with this, you know, thousands and thousands of products literally in your living room or a garage. So, you know, there are lots of different ways of approaching that. But I think, you know, you have to know, is it a better business to go go to wholesale first, for example, in fashion, um, where you produce a sample um, sample set and then you give it, to, you know, give it to an agency or you can sell it yourself and knock on doors of buyers and try to get orders that way, accumulate orders and then produce probably you know, a, a huge a, you know less of a risk um or you you go direct to um consumer like we did with kitchery which is uh, has its own advantages but also a huge amount of disadvantage you have to fill the store you have to place the order imagining what customers are going to kind of you know love and what's going to resonate the best without actually having the data so you know it is terrifying but also um uh, but also has a huge chance of succeeding if if you strike the right balance so um, definitely minefield, but um, my experience has definitely helped. And also just talking to lots of lots of people as much as possible to learn what is the best kind of way of saving costs and negotiating would be, you know, essential and before starting the business. Yeah, it's really good advice. I think it is absolutely a place that people trip up. So really useful to hear your experience of it. Marketing and brand obviously a really important part of creating cut through as business now. The fashion space broadly is incredibly saturated and it's um, challenging to find any sort of uh, blue ocean amongst amongst the industry. Um, in terms of your branding, positioning, marketing, etc, you've been pictured on huge celebrities on influencers you've created cult products that people love and are obsessed with you've got a very distinctive print and recognizable um, logo and brand you've also done really brilliant collaborations with interesting influencers and other people for you as a business how important has that press marketing influencer celebrity piece been to create cut through in what's a very noisy marketplace i think it was really really important for us in the beginning it still is now there are lots of different avenues that we we, we have in um indirect marketing but for us um it was really important to reach out to celebrities and influencers and um from the beginning only because we're not like a wholesale driven brand um so we didn't have products in these huge retail kind of environments that people could could come across or you know have this kind of marketing budget and engine behind a huge retailer who could really kind of put your product in front of the right people and and customers and generate kind of buzz and um uh 
and content that way. So in the beginning, we did invest in PR. We did invest in VIP marketing to make sure that, you know, we can get our product in front of those people who can tell others um, that we exist. Um, so that has been a huge part of our kind of launch strategy in the beginning. Um, and then, you know, after a while, you start having customers who kind of generate their own content. And then that kind of becomes part of the community driven um, marketing. But traditional and new social media marketing is has been essential to our business and then to our launch strategy from the beginning with that in mind obviously I you know I see you guys on Instagram I see you in the media I'm obviously very connected to it in the industry that I'm in so I'm sort of always always looking for for businesses that are doing interesting things if you go on LinkedIn if you go on Instagram and you look at the right things it can be a hugely expanding exciting educational way to expose yourself to news if you use it in the wrong way it can be very depressing and um do you have a good relationship with social media and do you find it easy to deal with competition that you presumably see through those channels I'd say I have a healthy relationship <laughs> with social media I say that laughing because we all have those moments where we're like oh my god I'm, I'm you know I'm worth nothing um but I really enjoy social media and has been a, a really great tool for the business um and it can be like an endless source of inspiration. So me and my team, we're always on Instagram, Pinterest, you know, everything linked, not so much for some reason. For me, it's more a visual medium and social media that I like. Um, but I do think that it's really important to kind of check yourself, and make sure that you're not um, overexposing yourself to things that's going to make you really depressed. Um, so about six months ago, I found the mute button. So <laughs> I use that quite liberally on Instagram. So there'll be lots of people that I really kind of admire um, or some other people who are incredibly successful. And I find myself kind of comparing myself to, and it's probably not that healthy for me to look at it every day. In those cases, I make sure that I just meet that and just be ready to kind of, you know, be in my lane and, and be focused um, so yeah, I think it depends on how you use it in terms of competition. I really don't kind of see, I try not to see anything as a direct competition. I am a super competitive person. So if I actually like target someone as a competition, that becomes quite dangerous. So I, I always tell our team as well, because there it is a really saturated market and, you know, even more so now with lots of Instagram brands that pop up every second and you know a lot of the messaging that we see could be similar or you know products can can look similar by accident or otherwise but you know what I tell our team is that we have to focus on what we are about because once you start looking sideways and worrying about your back and everything you do kind of lose what was essentially you know your lane and what you're really special and good at so I really try to focus our team on you know walking our line and making sure that we're going towards our goal rather than like shifting our focus to make sure that you know we're batting off you know competition I think that's quite unhealthy um but yeah Instagram you know love or hate it we kind of have to live with it don't we <laughs> it's funny because it's like we're all taught all these things that you know if people copy you that's flattering and if someone says something mean about you it's a reflection of where they're at yeah. You, know, you have all these like sound bites in your head and it's still, you know, if you go online and someone who used to work for you is working for a competitor, you still think, fuck you. <laughs> you know, it, it's like, it can It does hurt. It does hurt. Yeah, it can be derailing if you focus too much on it. And I agree with you. It's like, we're all so concerned about what other people are doing. Yeah. Tell me about investments into the business. What What's the most valuable investment that you've made into the business? I'd say um, people and product, for sure, um, and time. <laughs> I'd say a huge amount of huge amount of time invested in the business. <laughs> um, work life balance balance is uh, an elusive one, um, but yeah, I'd say product because we are really fighting about pro fighting with products at the end of the day. Um, product and brand, I guess, is is kind of our bread and butter, and 
cutting corners uh, in that regard is is always going to end up in tears. So I've always been super focused on making sure that we're investing a lot of money and effort and time into finding the right suppliers, producing the right garment um, garment with quality and making sure that we're not cutting any corners there. So which can be a, a, a huge amount of investment for a small brand and it should be really. Um, but I think as you go through the different life cycle of a of a brand and as a business you do invest things a, a little bit differently so now we're looking at investing more significantly in marketing um so that's going to be our next kind of level of growth and making sure that we have the right people who can drive the business as we grow so yeah people in product and now going into marketing so you're a female ceo the fashion industry from a gender perspective is pretty balanced there's a lot of men who work in in fashion what's your experience been like have you ever felt at a disadvantage from being a female founder you know strangely enough and I've been very lucky that I haven't really felt it particularly in England so far um there has been a few times in my past um experiences uh, mostly in Asia for some reason um that I have genuinely felt oh gosh this is happening because I'm female um but luckily so far within kind of Kitri um Kitri's history it hasn't really affected me that much having said that um if we are to raise money our funds I I hear as a female founder that can be very very challenging um, so I look forward to that. <laughs> that could be an exciting new update we could bolt onto the podcast about you saying how miserable that process was. <laughs> I'm really stacking myself up for it. <laughs> it's going to be great. The best piece of advice that you've ever been given about running a business? Um, fail quickly, learn fast, and evolve. Um, that was really, in my mind, when I first heard that, it was really negative and really pessimistic so I was like I'm not gonna fail I'm gonna succeed at everything that I do you know and I was very like oh that's a weird piece of advice but actually if you think about it and I've experienced not necessarily fail as a business but lots of different things that 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 you have to do and test within a business to grow I think it applies really well to that so don't be afraid of um experimenting and failure is part of that. But if you're going to do it, then you have to, you know, give yourself time to fail quickly so that you can learn from that and then move on because you really have a short space of time to make your business work as a as a whole. So yeah, I think that's something that that I keep on coming back to. And also, you know, as a female founder, it really rang true, particular I mean, even now, um, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, I think we all feel like oh you know if I ask for help that's a sign of weakness or maybe I should know that um so it might seem stupid for me to ask now but I think it 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 does far more damage if you kind of pretend that you know everything because nobody knows everything um and then you can make a fatal mistake somewhere down the line so you know I think also if you ask for help you'd be really surprised at how many people and how many um uh, you know friends family business associates you know colleagues that could offer you help and advice that is really valuable so um and you feel this sense of community and sense of like you know a, a bond with people that that you exchange ideas with so it, it can be also really rewarding so it's been um yeah I'd say those two are the best pieces of advice that I've received I'm interested in your thoughts on failure because and failure sort of and quitting in that sense because you, you talk about failing fast and I guess that's sort of you know specifically iterating and making sure that you're not just like driving something that you've got evidence doesn't doesn't work but certainly in my early career a lot of the advice particularly from my parents was you know don't quit just stay just just stay strong and there's a lot of like lots of people do quit so by virtue of just being still in it you know that's good I've met a lot of brands in the last 14 years and some of them I'm like you should quit you should quit this and it's not for you and it's not not everyone is supposed to be an entrepreneur and not everyone is supposed to be miserable doing something that they hate because there's this kind of idea around quitting being connected to failure do you feel like that is a narrative that you've seen and do you do you what are your thoughts around the idea of kind of quitting and realizing that things aren't right for you Oh, that's that's really difficult and also intensely personal, isn't it, for each to each to their own. Um, 
I, I always used to see quitting as a huge, huge failure. And I think that's what I really struggled with when I was particularly a, a young, um, a young woman. Um, but the first time that I really had to come to terms with that was when I quit ballet. Um, and that was when I was 17, 18. And that was the most difficult decision I have ever had to make. Because I came over when I was, you know, 12, 13 to England, left my family behind in South Korea. We spent, you know, years and years apart, not see, not being able to see each other because I had this dream of becoming a ballerina. At the age of like 17, 18, when I realized, you know what, as much as I'd love to, and I'm working my ass off, um, I just won't make it. You know, it's a, it was one of those kind of big realizations of, of my life that it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter, you know, how much I'm willing to sacrifice or how much I love it to certain things aren't for you, you know? And I think that was like really important life, life lesson, but a really hard one. And I think since then, I've always been very terrified of like loving something so much that if I failed, it would destroy me, you know? Um, but I don't think there is any shame in that. And I think your life is infinitely less fulfilling if you don't try. But I think you do have to be, have, you know, have that kind of self-awareness and objectively being able to look at something and go, you know what, I've really given it my all, but I, my time can be spent better, you know, and I'd be happier doing something else. Nobody is going to think any less of you for, for quitting. It's not, you know, life is, is long and also it's a, it's a marathon. So, you know, if you fail at this thing, maybe that will propel you to do something better next time, you know? So I don't, I don't see it as such a negative thing and I, I don't think anybody should. I mean, I started, I had a side business when I was, 22 with some friends um selling antiques online um which we were one of the first to do it in such small scale it was really fun a side hustle we came to a realization at the you know a few years down the line we were like oh this is about to either get big or we have to close it because we either then had to raise money and quit our day day jobs to do this full time or we just kind of go thank you very much had a really great time learn a lot and let's just fold it and we decided to fold it in the end but all those experiences that I gained from that venture helped me um start Kitchery. and you know at the time we were a bit ashamed of it we were like oh maybe we just didn't have the guts to do it or maybe we didn't do it well enough or you know but I think ultimately you know, it, the, the race is a long one and it's whatever you get out of it and how, how it makes it makes you feel and how it makes you happy. So yeah, I don't think there is anything, you know, to be ashamed about. Yeah. I mean, I used to, I've obviously been fired many times in 14 years, but you know, it's an agency model. People leave, new marketing directors come in, people go bust, people decide they want to change. You work with people for five years, they want something different. You don't do a good enough job. You know, there's a, you sort of desensitize to the idea of being fired. And I remember someone saying to me a long time ago, um, rejection is just redirection. Mm, I like that. Whether it's in your sort of in a dating capacity or a professional capacity, it's like if something isn't right for you, every second that you're in it is a waste of your time. Obviously there's a period of learning, but beyond that it's sort of like dead time. So all it's doing is redirecting you to the next thing. So I've always tried to think about it. And it, and it does work. Like when we've had things go wrong at work, if you're sort of open to new opportunities, very quickly something appears that's a good use of time that you now have because you're not spending it on, mm. on something else. Absolutely. You've had some hugely successful wins in the in the past sort of four, four plus years of running the business, no doubt many more to come. Do you take time to enjoy them? Do you pat yourself on the back when you do well? Or is it just a constant relentless pursuit I think it's a bit of both um in the first two years of the business we things were happening so quickly and so often um because everything was new and everything's so exciting but we had such kind of drive and ambition for the business um that I was really bad at kind of celebrating and and realizing you know this momentous thing that we've achieved together as a team um but I think I realized that celebrating those moments and taking a step back and enjoying those moments is really important, not just for my health, but also for our team, because really you have to acknowledge 
everybody's input and their hard work and, you know, something that we've achieved together um, so that we can enjoy it for that moment and then just, go, you know, go on to do bigger and better things. So I try to do both, um, you know, third and fourth year of the business, it was like no other because of COVID, you know, we were, we were all geared up to have like the biggest year yet in our third year of business, but then COVID happened. So in a way I still feel like we are, you know, a two year old business and, um, you know, we're starting again from year three, but I really do think that there's so much more to achieve. And I guess I'm just really eager to get there. So you forget to kind of acknowledge the achievements that you have made along the way because you've got bigger and better things in your sight. Um, but I think it's really, really important. And I'm trying to do more kind of um, sitting back and, and, and acknowledging the successes that we've had. Yeah, it's a common thing that people find really challenging, particularly if it's milestones in your business plan. You sort of just tick them off rather than celebrate. Yeah. It's hard to, to know which are the moments that are sort of truly celebrate- celebratable. um how do you keep learning do you do you listen to podcasts you have mentors do you meet up with other founders do you read do you watch documentary series what is your process for exposing yourself to learning all of the above (laughs) all of the above yeah I mean literally anything and everything that I can get my hands on um podcasts like this is so important I think for founders I really do and I've listened to every every single episode that you've put out already we appreciate that thank you (laughs) because it's really inspiring and it's you know it's helpful to understand that you're not alone in this journey um and what's interesting is that every industry no matter what industry you're in there is kind of like a like a similarity across the journey of being a business owner and and being an entrepreneur so that that's really helpful but also just kind of meeting new people I think is is one of the most kind of invigorating thing that I do um and which I haven't been able to do for so long now because zoom is just not the same is it if you meet someone for the first time because there is it's really hard I mean if you know that person and you're having a catch-up over you know zoom or microsoft team or whatever it's you know okay but meeting someone for the first time through the screen is is quite you know it's quite difficult um so I've, I've been really missing that and I've been starting to uh, like do it more now now that we're out of lockdown and things and I've forgotten how how amazing that is just to share stories and to learn and you know things come out that you didn't even think about for your own business and you know you share information and you share contacts and that is the community that I really love you know so I think for me that is the most useful um there and there's a lot of female founders in London particularly in our space um that we get to meet on events and you know different panel talks and all of those things that's starting up again um so yeah I'm super excited about that as well meeting new people again how do you define success (laughs) this is a million dollar question isn't it (laughs) um without sounding really practical I'd say achieving financial security whatever that may be for you um doing and doing what you love um doing it and being surrounded by people you love um really simple but very elusive (laughs) thing is it you know this we forget this people who really hate their jobs and you know don't enjoy being at work and I think the beauty of running your own gig is that you have a bit more control over creating an environment that that you think serves you and and certainly in my situation I set up my business because it was somewhere I wanted to work and I didn't find that anywhere else and then now you've got I've got 25 people who sort of agree that it's a nice place to work or I don't know I've got 25 staff maybe 80 oh I'm sure they love it (laughs) Um, but you know you sort of it's it's quite a um extraordinary thing to be able to combine something that pays for the way that you want to live and also in you enjoy and you know all the stresses become become more worth it so I think yeah that's a that's a good definition um we hear a lot about productivity we talk about optimization we're bombarded with ideas around how busy we should be we're all supposed to be multi-potentialites and be maximalists we see stuff on social media all the time fitness brands, supplement brands, everyone's telling us about sort of brain optimization. 
Um, we're all supposed to be an amazing cook, a businesswoman, be incredibly fertile, understand what's going on in Ukraine, also run a team and be fashionable and probably be thin as well. It's it's completely unrealistic as a um, sort of marketing message, particularly for women. With that in mind, if you had an extra hour in the day, what would you use it for? I think you covered a lot of what I would use it for in your in your question. Actually, I was thinking about this and there are three. I would love to learn how to cook properly because I am a horrendous cook. I actually can't cook anything. Um, so I'd love to do that. I'd love to learn a new language. I've been threatening to learn Italian for about four years now and haven't managed to get through the first chapter uh, <laughs> and exercise more. Um, I've, recently started exercising properly for the first time since I stopped dancing and oh my gosh it's hard and just trying to find that 45 minute an hour a day to actually do that without being absolutely exhausted for the rest of the day <laughs> is is um something that I'm trying to do you could combine your run with like an audiobook about Italian and then you could optimize your time but that's exactly what we're not supposed to do we're supposed to enjoy it <laughs> So I quite like cooking, but I'm, I sort of need a lot of time, like any high pressure. My sister's a chef and worked at kind of two and three Michelin star restaurants. And that's not really available to me as something that I can kind of get into. But with cooking, I cooked the other day and it took like three hours. And at the end of it, I thought, oh, I didn't. (laughs) I just like, and it takes like 10 minutes to eat it. It's like when people say, oh, you could, you know, you could go for an hour run and I just now think it'd be quicker if I drove like it just I got- <laughs> exactly <laughs> efficiency yeah, yeah efficiency exactly um so obviously the last year and a half hasn't gone to plan for everyone it's been really a, a fascinating time to run a business but um you know absolutely not without its challenges what do you what's next for you what can we expect to see this year you know for the business I'm sure everybody says this, but this is going to be the year of Kitri. <laughs> I am, I am sure of it. Um, so we're super excited about lots of things that's happening in, in the pipeline for this year. Um, we have collaborations, new product launches, um, widening the product range, um, new partners, international partners, and um, just really kind of growing the brand again and, and being back on the growth plan. I think last couple of years has been instrumental in us refocusing the business and making sure that we're building a you know, sustainable and scalable business and making sure that um, you know, we're doing everything right so that we can be poised for growth again once the time is you know, right. And I believe this is the time. So yeah, watch the space. I think, you know, our team is so psyched about what we're going to do this year. So um, onwards and upwards and um, hopefully everybody in the industry will also have a great time. Um, God knows we need it. Um, (laughs) So yeah, we're really excited about 2022 and beyond. Well, I have no doubt that we'll see you everywhere and I wish you all the best with that. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know you're you've decided not only to run a business and um, begin to think about fundraising and growing and hitting this year, but you also decided to renovate your house at the same time. Which is- I know. It's absolutely crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time. And no doubt um, lots of people will be fascinated by what you've achieved and, and really inspired by, by what you've shared today. So thank you. No, thank you very much for having me. Thanks. <laughs>